Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Somewhere in the Skies podcast is always free to consume. But it isn't free to create. That's why I've started the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Why did these beings choose me? There is an orange-yellowish light comes on. David is looking at the light and doesn't hurt his eyes. He is aware of the beings. They are standing over him. They are touching his body. My name is David Huggins. I'm 72 years old, and I live in Hoboken, New Jersey. I was living a perfectly normal life until I started remembering things. It was just like image upon image upon image. It wouldn't stop. I was so scared. The eyes were just glowing. They hit the ground running straight toward me. And we floated up to some type of craft. I said, you hurt me, you hurt me. No, 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 no. This is the woman I never told anyone about. When I was 17, I lost my virginity to a female extraterrestrial. That's all I can say about it. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. So I've been researching the UFO phenomenon for about two decades now. Ugh, God, that makes me feel old. Anyway... I've watched plenty of UFO and alien abduction documentaries throughout those years. They come and go, some being alluring in terms of content, some being complete bullshit, and some that stay with you for years to come, begging the question, did this actually happen to this person? And that's exactly what happened when I first watched Love and Saucers, the far-out world of David Huggins. The documentary is the story of David Huggins, an unassuming 72-year-old who claims to have had a lifetime of encounters with otherworldly beings, including an interspecies romance with an E.T. woman with whom he lost his virginity to and chronicled it all in surreal, impressionist paintings. Are his experiences a dream 
a hallucination, or could they be real? Today, I discuss the story and the process of filming with director Brad Abrahams. We dig deep into how the documentary came to be, the incredible story that Huggins brings to the table, and just exactly what Brad thinks of the entire abduction phenomenon through the lens of his first feature film. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad Abrahams. Brad, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies. I'm happy to be here. So, your film has been making the rounds both in and out of the UFO community lately, and with good reason. It is a stylish, extremely well-made, and compassionate film called Love and Saucers. And I immediately after viewing this, man, I had to reach out to you to get you on the show to talk about what the experience was like filming this. But uh, before we even get to that, I would love if you could sort of give our listeners who may not have seen the film yet, uh, maybe just a little elevator pitch about what this film, Love and Saucers, is all about. Sure. So at its core, it's about a totally normal 70-something guy who lives in Hoboken, New Jersey, works one day a week at a local deli, does some painting, loves watching sci-fi movies, and also lost his virginity to an extraterrestrial woman. And that's one of over a hundred encounters that he claims to have had a lot of them sexual in nature or romantic in nature. And he has chronicled every single one of the encounters that he remembers in these stunning sort of surreal impressionistic paintings. And this film is his story trying to tell it as matter of factly as one can tell a story like this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as we'll get to, he's uh, pretty, pretty blunt about it. Um, yeah. He he didn't really tippy toe around, you know, oh, I think I was maybe taken or this or that. Uh, well, we'll definitely get into that. But um, how I, I have to ask, too, like, how did the idea for the film come about? How did you even get involved in the UFO topic and get connected with David? Uh, well, it was um, not UFO specifically, but just sort of esoteric, paranormal, just these these hidden little known stories have always been a passion of mine, just personally, like reading about them, because who isn't fascinated by, you know, discovering a, a lost city or ancient culture. But as a way to, you know, as a as a filmmaker and, a, and I did commercials before this, just as a, a visual storyteller, um, what better way to to expose people to these stories that they may never have heard about or heard about in in a particular way. Uh, than filmmaking and and documentary filmmaking. So that's that's how I I got into this this niche of filmmaking, not necessarily like UFO, but I because of this I I was always listening to podcasts. And you know about five six years ago, seven years ago, there were only a few of mm-hmm. these sorts of paranormal ish podcasts. And I think I was listening to the Paracast, and I had just quit my my full time job in advertising and was sort of. Um, I had my ears pricked up for for any ideas I could do as an independent filmmaker. And they were talking about the abductee experience and sort of listing different cases. And offhand, as something like too ridiculous for them to discuss, was this guy, David Huggins, who claims he fathered 100 space babies across the galaxy. And then they laughed and, and, and moved on. And But for me, that was like, the you know the thing i remembered out of everything from the podcast because you know does this guy exist and if he exists how can he not be anything but crazy or you know is he t- somehow telling the truth so i 
I tried to track him down and I couldn't because he has no internet presence, which is pretty rare these days, even for an older guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to track down a neighbor of his, Farah Yurdzu. Maybe some people in the UFO community have heard of her. Um, she she has had some extraterrestrial experiences. And, and when she found out her neighbor, David, also did, she made a little photo book of, of some of his paintings. And I found that online, uh, got her email, and she gave me David's home phone number, and, and I just took it from there. That's a really interesting story. Like, that, that, that's the determination of, you know, mm-hmm. a, you know, a budding project. You, like, knowing you had to talk to this guy and go right. into those lanes to track him down. That's extremely admirable. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, what, do you th- what did you think of when you first, you know, connected with him? And I, I know you, you had to have that first face-to-face contact and be like, okay, where are we going to go from here? What was that experience like meeting David? Uh, well, the first I'll, I'll talk about the first phone call sure. because I I opened the film exactly how how the first phone call started, which was like once you know, hi, I'm Brad. We introduced ourselves. He just said, "Well, Brad, I don't know much, but what I know for certain is at 17 I lost my virginity to an extraterrestrial female." And you know, what a way to start a conversation, <laughs> and it just more cemented my my desire to try and. And pursue something with him. And so we had many phone conversations before I met him because I wanted to get the whole story and really um, have a focus for when I visited. And he actually invited for me to stay at his house for the first filming, which since I was self-funding it, uh, was it was a welcome, even though I knew it would probably be a little strange and awkward. Right. And, and it was. <laughs> I ended up sleeping in his ex-wife's bed who actually still lives with him, but she was away on vacation, thankfully. <laughs> and from m- morning to night, I, I filmed with David. And and for every single, like, bizarre thing, you know, like the, you know, 100-plus paintings stacked up in his studio to his 2,000-strong VHS film collection, there was his personality that completely balanced it all out because I'd never met someone who was so like immediately um like grounding down to earth simply spoken matter of fact about the the most like bizarre things you'll you'll ever hear so it immediately creates this this um conflict in your brain where you're like I shouldn't be like believing what he's saying but because of of who he is like his character I sort of have to mm-hmm. um cuz he's not some like ranting lunatic he's and everyone that's met him will say, like, David just seems like the nicest normal guy. So it makes you stop and pause and, and consider listening. And so that that was really what made it worth it for me to pursue, like, over the years to, to finish this film. Well, I mean, that the over the years comment, Brad, I'd love to know. This wasn't like shooting for a week with this dude, hearing his story, and then never talked to him again. Like, this was a pretty rigorous process. How long did you film David when you were shooting the film? Uh, it was over over a few years with with like long breaks in between because just the reality of independent filmmaking is you you don't have much money and when you when you do have money it's still not a lot so you can only go shoot for a few days at a time but but what's good about that process is then it takes much longer and you get um, you get to know your subject much better you see them over a greater peri- greater period of time it actually helps to flesh out the story as opposed to you know, oh, I'm just going to go film with you for two or three weeks straight um, and then have a finished film. So so that's it was it was really just like a weekend or 
three or four days every maybe year um, or six months or so. And then it started accelerating as we had more support and knew that we had like a pretty good film on our hands and opened it up and started filming, you know, Jeffrey Kripal and, and some of David's friends and colleagues. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you did mention the you know, the VHSs you saw when you went into his house, yeah. which was really cool, by the way, as someone who grew up on VHS, like that was, it was a very uh, nostalgic moment seeing those stacked, you know, 10 high all across the room. As for his paintings, did you know that, I mean, you, you, you had mentioned that you saw the book that um, Farah had created about all of his experiences, but did you know walking in there that you were going to see like these massive, huge paintings that this guy had made? No, not at all. And and I only found out about the painting part, like a little deeper into my research on him. And once I saw some of the images, they were very low res what was online, but I could still like immediately tell, like they're very, they were very arresting and they're all painted in a way that there, there's a story being told in them. They're very cinematic, which is unique, especially for someone who's, who's mostly self-taught. Uh, and they're, so they're like, as a, they're like, you see, you pick up, like, these are, these are little scenes from from a film, the composition, the lighting, the action in them. And, but no, I was not prepared for when I actually stepped into that room because just the sheer volume of them uh, and, and then the size, like some of them are like eight feet tall. It really, it really sort of grabs you and you're almost like jaw dropping. And, and it was the same effect when I, we, we returned with some crew, like a the cinematographer and sound guy and producer, they were just like, Oh my God. Uh, and every time we went, we would find more paintings that we we hadn't seen. Like I thought, like the first time I photographed like seventy five paintings, and then each time we'd come back, there's like oh five new ones. Yeah, they're and in person, it's the effect of them is even more eerie than than the photos. Yeah, they're extremely arresting. Like you said, like you know he he's he was self taught, so they're a bit amateur at times. But I mean, I'm no art <laughs> expert, but they're so engaging. Some of them, when you look into the eyes of like the creatures, or uh, you know, just just the the action you see in each painting, like you can tell that this dude is struggling to get this out onto the canvas. And I think that's right, yeah. extremely alluring and something you use as a really cool technique throughout the film when he's telling his stories. Um, but before we even get to like what he claims happened, you do go into like a deep dissection of this man's life, which I think it was very important. I wanted to know where he came from, you know, what brought him to Hoboken, New Jersey and what essentially became this incredible story. And it was pretty interesting to hear that he, uh, he fled a very, religious upbringing and belief seems to be a big part of the alien abduction phenomenon. So I have to ask you, do you think that his rejection of religion early in his life, do you think that had anything to do with how he sort of perceived or wrapped this whole alien abduction thing in his life? It, that, that's an, it's an interesting angle because Yes, he did. He did reject the religion that was forced upon him. I think like a, like a lot of people or especially creative people may. But he's also a very spiritual person. Like he meditates. He does the Chinese like I Ching, which is sort of like their tarot. He does yoga. He reads a lot of like sort of spiritual practices. He's not new agey, but there's definitely I think was a void and maybe a, to a certain extent in all of us of 
of like wanting to believe in something like other than just the the flesh and but Jeffrey Kripal took it one step further in suggesting that that the alien it was really the, this this um, mythos and in universe of the aliens that that helped fill that void or among other things became his like a new sort of thing for him to believe in or a new religion for him. Yeah. And Jeffrey Cripple is definitely someone I want to talk about. I've been following his work for years, so we will definitely get to his thoughts on all this. Um, but in the film, Brad, there is this, I guess, quote unquote woman that David constantly brings up and that her name is Crescent. Could you give us a little background on who Crescent may be? Sure. So there was a there was a, a consistent cast of characters that that would visit him. The little hairy guy, the insect being this tall skinny guy with a, a nub on his head and the grays. And but the one that that was more consistently there and that had the biggest impression on him was this a female and he calls her a female hybrid because everything about her seemed so human um, physically except for the face and the face had an almost classic gray look except more feminine and she had human-like hair and at first when he was younger their relationship seemed she was almost like a, a caring guardian type figure maybe even motherly but once he reached sexual maturity and and at 17 that relationship changed into something sexual and romantic and she she took more on of a role on as a almost like a significant other but she was one of of many of these hybrid females she was just the one that he interfaced with the most and, and connected with and he gave her that name crescent i don't think any of them actually had names as we know them. And the idea that that Crescent was, I guess, sort of manipulating David's mind and his body throughout all this, it's very controversial. And we do hear this a lot in alien abduction lore. But David also stated, and this is one of my favorite lines in the whole film, it kind of gave me chills, was uh, they were always invited. And that was really interesting. There seems to be this this willingness to let them do whatever they wanted with him, even though he seemed to have like you know, pretty much no choice in the matter. Do you think that if he didn't want these events to happen, that he could have somehow stopped it? Uh, that's really tough to say because, well, one one small detail was that, like, n- we noticed that in the paintings where they're they're having sex, she's always on top of him. So we we just asked, like, why why is that? And he said because I was always I felt paralyzed, and it was just easier that way. So he wasn't really didn't seem like he was really able to move when this was happening and and he didn't say it was unpleasant at all but it's an interesting fact and whenever especially when he was younger whenever he was like upset about what was going on or scared or didn't like it they would be able to to placate him you know like make pain go away or make the bad feelings go away so so it sounds like there was some psychological or telepathic type of of influence and i but i don't think that 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 was everything because you you still have i think the majority of abductees don't consider their their abductions like positive experiences yeah. so even though even if they were controlled on some level they still didn't end up liking it but with david um i think there was coercion but he still liked it he still you know 
it was still a positive in his mind. Maybe that's why it kept continuing too, because he didn't have any resistance. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And yeah, I mean, despite the whole idea of it being, you know, pleasurable or wanting it to continue, there seemed to be like this overall mission, you know, by these creatures Mm -hmm. of why they were doing it. And I found it fascinating Mm -hmm. that David was so sincere in that idea that he was, you know, somehow being used for this almost like hybridization program. We hear this by many women who claim abduction experiences, but not often by the men. You know, they claim, you know, maybe there's some sort of semen extraction, but not, you know, not the act of actually holding or being in contact with a baby that might be like half yours, you know. So what do you, what do you make of that whole claim by David that there was some sort of hybridization program that seems to be going on? Just stepping back a little, the, you know, in an abduction story, just the idea that someone is abducted is is alone sort of like a difficult leap, yeah. you know, to believe and and to to sort of suspend belief over. And then adding that you then procreated many times um, and and created many babies with them is a, is a whole other level of belief. So that took a lot of of like thinking over for me just to to be able to like accept that. And I think for David too, like when he first talks about like learning about that, he was he was you know in shock and and couldn't couldn't believe it. Again, I'll go back to Jeffrey Kripal. He says you know the idea of hybridity is is not so strange in the historical record, you know, just going back thousands of years with with the beliefs of the Greeks and Greek mythology, gods and, uh, you know, beings from the sky intermingling and, and, and breeding with humans was like a normal part of the mythology. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not without precedence. But getting into more of the why, at least what David thinks, he never was able to get an answer, is that, you know, they lost the ability somehow or maybe never had the ability to procreate like we do. And they need a human in some way, man or woman, to to make this happen. And so it wasn't like the act of sex at all that was that was really necessary. It was more getting his his like sperm and then using that to hybridize and make these make these children. And it was he noticed that as they grew up over time, they looked more and more human. Still not quite 100% human, like they still had the odd eyes. Mm-hmm. But he never saw them here. He only saw them when he was there with them, either like on a ship or, or somewhere else. So I don't know if it, what the whole point of the, if it's a program, um, if it's for them to come here, or if it's just to keep their, their own race going. It's uh, difficult to muse on. Yeah, yeah. To be determined, I guess. Well, the paintings, Brad, I want to get back to that for a second, because you were able to use these throughout the film to sort of, you know, propel his story to to elevate it in a way, I guess, which is, in essence, what he's trying to do as well to kind of get it out there without using words so much. Um, Did you always plan, you know, when you when you decided, yes, I want to tell his story, did you did you know you were going to sort of use those paintings as a technique to tell the story throughout? Yeah, definitely. And and without them, I probably wouldn't have made the film. I did experiment very early on with with the idea of maybe recreating the experiences that were in the paintings, like the key ones, live action. And like I did a test of that 
and I soon realized, like, what's the point? One, it it, it skews the documentary and in, into a place I, I don't really want it to go. In that, you know, it's already such a, a fantastical story, and and by showing it, I think it pushes it over the top. And two, I already have the paintings, and the paintings are are sort of incredible in their own right. So why not just use them as you know as the gift that they are? And and it also helps just being on a low budget, having that as a storytelling device, as opposed to like recreating everything. And I think, you know, you, we see a lot of recreations and without a lot of resources, they end up looking mostly very cheesy. Mm-hmm. And that's the the last thing I wanted for this film. So instead just was able to like shoot the, the paintings in an interesting way, like very macro with moves. And also we did an interesting technique where I, I hired this guy in Eastern Europe to, he painted depth maps. He's like one of the only people I think that does this, he paints these grayscale, almost like maps of the paintings that that show their depth. And then I can plug that into After Effects and put really subtle like camera moves and other effects on them that they're not over the top, but they, they really add to the immersion and that sort of unsettling feeling of the of the works. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the first things I noticed. I'm like, I'm so happy he didn't just do like a flat aerial yeah. <laughs> view of the paintings. It did. It, it was just enough, I think, to make it come to life. And I think that was really a really interesting technique. I'm so happy you decided to do that. And again, it helped enhance the story. And one of those paintings, Brad, was uh, that really caught my attention was that of an owl. Now, going back to sort of abduction lore, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Many experienced claim to have seen owls prior to or after a contact experience. And we see this throughout movies, uh, throughout the UFO abduction literature. Is this something you've ever explored at all in your research um, into the abduction phenomenon in making this film, the whole idea of the owl being present? Not specifically the owl, but more like the eyes of the mm. owl. And, and that was something that David David, in retrospect, was thinking like when he thought he saw that owl in the tree, then started to think that the eyes looked exactly like that of the hairy, the little hairy guy. Yeah. And that maybe it wasn't an owl and maybe it was that being or maybe the being that he saw, you know, wasn't a little hairy guy, but was was an owl. So that, yeah, I, I hadn't thought too much on it. Just like it, it's such a pervasive image as well, like in David Lynch's work, like with Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. the owl's always sort of there when something very strange is going to happen. Like it's um, something that that ushers in these sort of multi-dimensional experiences. Yeah, it, it's an interesting, you know, sort of subtopic that I think has mm-hmm. sort of made its way into the abduction phenomenon or lore, whatever you want to make of it. Um, it is interesting, the whole idea of screen memories, too. Like, maybe this sure, is what yes. they use to, like, give us something relatable. I, I don't exactly, know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what or, to make of it either. That, it's that, um, I think, I think it's, it's really, like, uh, eyes that, that seems a common de- denominator of a lot of these experiences. Like, the lasting impression is is of eyes. And it may be that the screen memory is, you know, the closest thing that we can think of of sort of glowing, creepy eyes in the dark is an owl. Yeah, I think you're right on that. It's definitely, mm-hmm. like, the, the most 
<laughs> human connection we can make, I think, for sure. Mm. In terms of humans, Brad, the people in David's life, you know, whether it's just like a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a lot of them, a majority of them, they do believe him just because, like you said, he's such a genuine person and actually pretty down to earth. Did you find anyone that didn't believe him that you were able to get on film? No, this was the the problem. Like, uh, I thought I would. Like, I thought his boss, for example, who's this real salt of the earth, like Italian immigrant who owns a deli. I thought he'd be like, you know, I like David, but this alien abduction stuff is wacky. <laughs> but instead it was like. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. No, you know, uh, because I know David and, and the type of guy he is, I believe him. And I might not have seen or, ha- or had an experience with aliens, but I have no reason to to disbelieve David or to judge him or, or be cynical about it. And then same with his neighbor, uh, who's known him for 30 years and didn't know about the abduction experiences. When I told him about it, he was like, well, yeah, you know, again, like it, it's it's even less likely that we're completely alone in the universe who knows if they're visiting or not. But uh, again, I like I've known David for 30 years. So and he's the nicest guy that, that I've ever met. So uh, I'm not going to disbelieve him out of hand um, and on and on. And same with Jeffrey Kripal, who's this like pretty much world renowned expert in his field of comparative religious studies. And, and he believes David. And the one person that I'm pretty sure would would have been the dissenting voice and would have been the most important one to get would have been his ex-wife, who whom I think, you know, they got divorced over this this whole subject. Mm-hmm. But she just did not, with all of her heart, did not want to appear on film. And I tried, I asked her, you know, separately 10 times in every different way I could. And even though she's a super nice lady and, and you know, we, we got along really well outside of filming, she just, you know, I could not convince her to, to get on film. I think she just did not want, it's too painful for her to talk about. And she didn't want to I, feed into this, story any more than than I already had. Yeah, I, I get that, man. I mean, I've spoken to many experiencers who like, you know, their their significant other is, you know, supportive and is there for them. But when it comes to actually like broadcasting it out to the world, that's a whole other can of worms that a lot of people don't want to get, you know, involved. Yeah. And with. and also, you know, further on the, the disbelieving scale, I feel like there's not much of a point. I mean, this is your average person on the street is going to be the one that's like, dude's crazy, you know, and yeah. you can just tell from like YouTube comments and other things 
that's the general populace, um, and and those are the you know a lot of the people watching the film. So the the I think it's the audience that's the skeptic, rightfully so, in in a in a situation like this. And sure, like it could have gotten like a psychologist or sociologist to talk about how it's linked to trauma and, or it's linked to personality disorder or seizures, but none of them actually know David or, you know, he's not a patient of theirs. So that is, is I don't think, the most responsible thing either. Right, right. It's, it's just a little too disconnected from the story, yes. I think, for sure. Yeah. Well, you were able to get his son on film, which I thought was really interesting, his son Michael. What, what were his thoughts on all of this about what his father was bringing forward? Yeah, Mike, Michael was a big surprise too. So like I, I sat him down and I started asking him like, you know, what was your childhood like? And he's like, oh, it was, you know, a normal childhood, nothing out of the ordinary. I'm like, really? No, nothing out of the ordinary <laughs> in, in your childhood compared to other of your friends? And he had to really think about it. And I was like, what about, you know, the fact that your father was abducted by aliens? He was like, oh, yeah, that. Yeah, I guess that's a little <laughs> out of the ordinary. Uh, and, and that was how it sort of went. Like, for him, it was just like this matter-of-fact part of his life and upbringing. Like, his dad made these weird paintings and talked about being abducted. But he never he never passed judgment. And he just believed him without any sort of, you know, criticism. And he never, I don't think, had an experience as support or evidence, but he just was like, well, I don't have a reason not to believe my dad. And I think David sort of shielded him from the, the more explicit paintings until he was older. And like in the film, he said, Michael would say like, dad, who are, who are these people you're painting? He's like, oh, these are just, you know, some people that I know from somewhere far away. And I think that was a pretty good way to, to lightly introduce his son to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, oh God, I can't even imagine like that just becoming like a a, a normal thing throughout your yeah. adolescence. Is oh, yeah, my dad's an alien abductee. Yeah, yeah, his friends are from France or something. Yeah, it's right. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've mentioned him a lot throughout this interview so far, Brad. The man of the hour, Jeffrey Kreipel. Now, this dude is like a superhero to a lot of us. Um, I guess, you know, younger, maybe more progressive UFO researchers, because he looks at it from a completely different angle. And I think it's one that is essential, uh, necessary, and may give us, you know, a, a good clue on what we might be dealing with. So for those who don't know who Jeffrey is, could you sort of give us a little background on who this guy is and how you were able to get him on camera, which is really rare? Yeah, so he's he's a, a professor of comparative religious studies at Rice University in Houston, which is um, like a very sort of exclusive liberal arts college, and its faculty is, is well known throughout the world. So he's he's a very well-respected Academic. He focuses on paranormal phenomena and people who have have experienced paranormal phenomena and tries instead of dismissing them out of hand as crazy or having a psychological or brain chemistry disorder, tries to put it in a historical context. And what he found was, you know, doing what academics do by going back into the literature over thousands of years, found that alien abduction experiences, for the most part, not all of them, they share a lot in common with mystical experiences and religious experiences and, you know, psychedelic experiences and that, that maybe these things are the same thing. So 2000 years ago, you know, someone in Greece or Mesopotamia having a, an experience that involved the, you know, the gods or spirits 
or someone in the 1500s having, you know, visions of, of apostles and angels and, and Jesus, uh, and then someone in our times having visions of, of these odd-looking aliens, that these are the same things and that they're real experiences that we, we don't understand and don't know what they are, but we, just because of how our brains work, we then fill in the holes and fill in the gaps with what we know or what we've seen or what we've heard so that they get colored by popular culture. So what he's saying is it's sort of like the metaphor is like um, light through stained glass. So we see all these beautiful colors and patterns and symbols of the stained glass, but that there's actually a light shining through it. And that light is the experience. And what we're seeing is is what's being filtered through all manner of things with our, our brain and, and the world that, that we live in. So that's his that's his sort of theory in a nutshell. So he, and he's not saying that aliens don't exist and that aliens aren't necessarily even coming here, but that he believes that that abduction phenomena isn't this literal story of beings that are actually abducting and experimenting on people. He thinks that it's, it's something sort of much more universal and non-literal than that. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I mean, he even, you know, in within all of that, he admits that he had almost like a mystical experience himself. Am I correct in that? Yeah, exactly. And and what's interesting, again, is it took the form, it was very much like what you might call an abduction experience, but it took the form of more like Hindu mythology. And he's not he's not Indian or Hindu, but his, that was his his focus, academic focus at that time. So he wrote a book about sort of the the erotic content of Hindu mythology. And it actually got him banned from India um, <laughs> and harassed by, by Indian Secret Service uh, for years later. But so his his um, the content of his paranormal experience was had all this sort of like there's, you know, I think Kali was in it or Shiva. And it had it had uh, this sort of imagery. But if you swapped in greys and um uh, alien spaceships, it would have been, you know, exactly your your typical UFO abduction experience. Yeah, it was extremely interesting, you know, especially since he's he's willing to come forward and talk about this, having had his own personal experience somehow with it, filling in those gaps. I, I think that's essential. And, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, like sort of what we put our own lens on what the experience might be. So many people think it might have been a religious experience or, or this or that. It's very fascinating. This, We can go down so many different rabbit holes when it comes to these experiencers. Yeah, and it's, it's in some circles, it's blasphemy to say it's anything other than, um, you know, very specific uh, sequence of events that happened. Right. You know, that it's a UFO from another world coming and doing these very specific things and and you can't see beyond that and then there's all of the events as of late that are being revealed with you know the the military and observing these craft and and that could be like a totally different thing than alien abductee experiences they might not be related to these these craft or ships that that they're seeing which is a very you know this is a very like studied analytical real thing that's being that's showing up on like cameras and radar which is a little bit different than how people, you know, experience alien abductions. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. Well, 
the my favorite, my absolute favorite part of the film, Brad, was when you you had a showing of David's work in New York City, and this was the moment I'd sort of been waiting for in the film where we really got an outside eye on how his work was perceived, and then learning that this dude says he actually experienced these things. So how did the how did this all come about? The idea of doing an art showing um, for David. I, I love this part of the film. Yeah, well, it, you know, after we had a cut of the film earlier that didn't have that and it felt it, it felt just too almost claustrophobic, like we needed to get out of his house, get out of his block where he lives in Hoboken and actually see him him interacting with the outside world and and, you know, people other than his immediate sphere. So we thought, you know, perfect would be a gallery showing. But, you know, no one knows him and and he hasn't really shown his work especially a solo show anywhere. So we had to engineer the whole thing. So, you know, we rented a gallery space and it came along with like a curator who helped us like pick the works and put them up on the wall. And then just through word of mouth, you know, like Facebook and, and other things, we, we started to spread the word and it ended up, you know, being, you know, much more successful than we thought it was like perfect amount of people. We had a a great cross section, you know, young and old, and it was just so, so fascinating just for us to see David juxtaposed with this old guy from the South, juxtaposed with these like young New York, like hipsters, basically art right, hipsters right. and just how they like totally embraced him and instead of like judging and snickering and and making fun. They were all like, wow, this is so cool. This is so weird and, and interesting. And they're almost like in awe of listening to him talk uh, and tell his stories like like it was almost some like sort of like guru uh type of experience is really really odd yeah absolutely man and like the whole time he was sort of you know telling his story (laughs) behind each painting i was like watching the person listening that's always fascinated me more like how they're gonna react to it i i love those moments of like you know hearing something you're clearly not used to hearing and then being like oh my god he actually like believes this happened to him this isn't some dude like just creating a story to make a painting it's 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 very interesting Um, yeah there's like jaws dropped yeah throughout the whole galaxy the gallery right and then you know there was even another like i guess quote-unquote experiencer there who said oh yeah i've been abducted but nothing like this that that was (laughs) that was a perfect moment of just like normalizing this thing you know Mm -hmm. for the experiencers it's like an everyday occurrence yes it's profound and probably life-altering to them but like at the same time it's like they have their own community and it's like oh yeah i was taken last week how about you blah 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 right yeah (laughs) It's it's fascinating. In terms of that, like in the years of filming this and getting to know David and, you know, I'm sure doors are opened in your own uh, mind of like what you think of all this. Do you believe David's story? Uh, I think it's two two questions, really. It's like one is, do I believe David? Mm -hmm. And that's a yes, because I don't think he's he's making anything up at all. He's describing experiences that that he experienced. But then the next question is, do I believe aliens or other beings uh, from maybe other dimensions are visiting earth and taking people and having sex with them and making hybrid children with them? And so that is, I can't say yes, because that's a really big leap, right? From, from believing David or then believing this sequence of events that happening. But I also, you know, just as, just as, 
fervently will, will say that I don't disbelieve it because I have also no no evidence that it's not happening as well. Um, and and the evidence we do have that it's happening is that a lot of people talk about having these experiences so that something is is happening. So I'll say that I believe David and I believe that something really odd has been happening for a long time that we don't understand and may not be as as straightforward as these are people from another place coming down and exper- experimenting on us. You know, maybe it's maybe it's some interdimensional thing that like Jacques Vallée and others have talked about. Maybe that's more uh, believable or not. I don't know. But I just can't I, I can't like call myself a believer just because, you know, I don't I don't have the answers to to give myself over to that. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I watched it uh, a second time with my girlfriend, and at the end, she said, do you believe him? And, you know, my answer in with your film and with any person I've ever interviewed about this topic is, you know, I wasn't there. And that's kind of where I leave it. I was not there. I cannot say, no matter how much evidence or lack of evidence there is, I was not there in the room when that happened. So, yeah. Well, how how is the overall response been, Brad, since the film came out? What do viewers think about it? I know it's screened in many different cities. It's on every streaming service you can possibly think of, which is awesome. Like, what 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 do you gather about what people are saying about the film? It's been it's been great so far. Overall, it's been really great and it was it's so neat like being a filmmaker and being able to attend film festival screenings like around the country because each each city has its own culture and and vibe and so each audience would react completely differently like in austin texas at a genre film festival like people are so into it and you know they love the paintings and the parts about vhs and they're having like a great time and then in a place like utah it's like <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, like they still like it, but it's it's they're really weirded out and creeped out like, oh, my gosh, uh, especially the sexual content. And then in a place like Miami, they're more sort of like laughing at David, like, oh, look at this. It's a little bit of like a freak show. <laughs> so a- everywhere is was was totally different. But what was universal is that people would come up afterwards and say, you know, I came into this thinking I would watch like a film about like a wacky, crazy guy. And, uh, you know that would be it. But by the end, I don't know anymore. And I actually, against all my like better judgment, I want to believe this guy because he, he's a believable guy. And there's, you know, there's, there's little evidence to think that he would make any of this up. So that, and that's what all I hope for. All I hope was that people would suspend their judgment and start to think that, you know, there's something that can be gained from not dismissing these stories out of hand. And maybe it's as simple as like learning more about us about humans um, and how we work. And and on the far end, it, it, you know, maybe there are people or beings that are, are visiting us from afar. So, and, and we even had people that admitted that they'd seen UFOs or had experiences during the Q&A. So like in front of like hundreds of people, they're getting up and saying this, that the film made them feel comfortable that they could talk about it. Oof. And then since it's been released, it's been getting pretty, like overall pretty good reviews you know i'd say like 80 percent positive which is really good for like the online um trial by fire yeah (laughs) exactly so um it's been it's been doing well and it's gonna go it's gonna be on hulu soon like late late in march which is gonna be really big to to get like lots of eyeballs on it similar how how jeremy's film 
Patient 17 is, is on Netflix now. Like it just being on one of those big subscription services, like basically like opens opens up your market by millions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that'll be the real interesting task. Because right now I'd say like, you know, thousands have seen it, but soon it will be much, much more than that. Yeah, man. And what's exciting about that too is like that just you're giving a voice to like a, a – a really sort of niche community that that is afraid to talk about it outside of like their friends or their support groups because like no one's going to believe them. But now that it's out there to literally to the world to both judge or accept, like that's exciting and that's kind of the risk you take when you come forward with these things. So uh, I exactly. think it's great that you've given David that platform and now it's up to the public, you know, to come out with their own conclusions but um do you know like offhand has david even seen the film or like what he thinks of this whole process of working with you yeah so it actually took a long time for david to see it once it was finished because you know he his preferred viewing format is vhs right and it's more difficult than you think these days to get something dumped on, onto vhs so it took you know eventually i gave up and sent him a DVD. But even before that, when the film was finished, he, he called me to say, you know, Brad, I, I had uh, like a message from, from the beings that about the documentary. And I was like, Oh God, what, no, <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> what you know, what did, what did they say? Erase them all. He actually said that they, yeah, they, um, they approve of it and that they support it. And, and even though it's sort of like a ridiculous statement, like that the extraterrestrials approve of the film it actually made me feel really good because if they are real the last thing i want is to be pissing them off <laughs> so then shortly after that i i sent him a dvd and he was able to watch that and he again i was i was worried i didn't know what you know it's his life it's very personal you know but he called me back and said brad i just want you to know like i really like the film i think it's really well done and that was it just like how that's how you know simply spoken he is that was his review was that he really liked it and thought it was very good uh so so i'm glad i'm glad about that it's been very different for him i think thankfully he doesn't have the internet so he can't go on to like right. you know twitter or youtube and read all these like very childish comments <laughs> that you see yeah um so he's sheltered from that which which is really mm-hmm. helpful but now he's getting you know calls for radio shows he was on um britain's like biggest morning show you know viewed by millions every morning they had him come into a studio in new york to be patched in (laughs) and um yeah that's you know that's totally new experience for this you know mid-70s guy who never had any sort of of fame before so i think he's actually enjoying it yeah i mean the dude is in his 70s like let him let him ride that wave for sure exactly yeah (laughs) i couldn't agree more and to know that the film has been approved the first ufo slash alien abduction documentary to be approved by the beings abducting the man that's (laughs) pretty pretty bragging rights right there man for sure well i know you're working on another film that's you know kind of relates to this kind of doesn't who knows um where we're trying to make those connections right now in in our two different camps of thought but you're working on a film about cryptozoology which is another big interest of mine can you tell us a little bit about that project before we uh wrap things up here yeah i think it, you know it's a very different film like it's about a, a big field but what's similar about it is again it's something it's it's done in a very non-judgmental way and and taking it seriously so instead of the typical 
you know, Discovery Channel or like reality TV hunt for monster sensationalized piece. It's it's actually taking the field as as just for under serious consideration, like cryptozoology is actually something that that's important. So we're interviewing all of the most credible in the field, like Lauren Coleman, Linda Godfrey, Lyle Blackburn, Scott Martis. We're staying away from from anyone on the fringes. And still, I mean, it's still going to be fun and quirky. Like, you can't get around that yeah. with cryptozoology. I mean, all these people we're interviewing are all characters in their own right. And and um, the beasts themselves are kind of funny and weird. But it's it's not about finding creatures. We're, you know, we're still going out in the field, but we're not going on expeditions hunting for something. Because that's when I think you get into into trouble. But instead, it's it's like the legitimacy and history of it basically, and, and, and considering it like a, a, an actual field of study. So that, that's cryptozoologists. And we're, we're in the fundraising phase right now, but have, have shot about probably like 15% of the film so far. Well, that's, that's good to hear, man. It's invigorating to know that like there are filmmakers out there who want to lend credibility to these topics. And that's what we strive to do constantly is, you know, give these things a place in, you know, the mainstream to be like, look, something weird is going on. No, we don't know what it is, but uh, we're trying to figure it out. So I think that's really cool. I, I'm really looking forward to that film. Lauren Coleman is, again, like a hero to a lot of us out there. So awesome. Yeah. That. Yeah. And if anyone is, is interested in more like sort of serious or like almost scholarly cryptozoology films there's the seth breedlove you know small town monsters mm -hmm. have you heard of him absolutely yeah i had him on the show a couple yeah. yeah months ago oh cool yeah so he yeah he you know breaks down basically like individual cryptid stories and and that's also refreshing that he doesn't do it in a in that reality tv style way mm -hmm. Yeah, and really shines a light on these small towns and like the lore behind yeah. what has happened there. Yeah, love it. I I, I can't wait to see a uh, a hybrid film between the two of you at some later exactly. date. <laughs> yeah. Well, the paintings. I, I before we go, Brad. These things are so incredible, and I know we can't get our hands on the originals, but they are available in some form, right? I, I believe I saw this on your website. Where can we get those? Yeah. So the we made prints available. Because it's hard to actually buy an original, you have to be in New York City or Hoboken and pick it up directly from David. And if you want to do that, get in touch with me and I'll, I'll try and, and work that out. But because a lot of people aren't in that position, we decided to sell limited edition, like very high quality prints of, of six of our most favorite of his paintings. And if you just go to loveandsaucers.com, you'll see a, a shop link up there or store link and and you can pick from those paintings that's awesome and again the dvd of the documentary is available at your website as well and um <laughs> it's available on countless streaming devices and you said hulu coming up that's <laughs> right. awesome man i can't yeah. wait for that um well Brad, this film, it's, I, I can imagine it would be polarizing for those who simply have no room in their lives to believe something like this. And I can't really fault people for that, but the way you weave in and out of David's life and like his genuine nature, it makes it something truly to ponder. And like, no matter what did or didn't happen, I think you treated David with compassion, with, you know, objectivity and with this lens that allowed us to 
peek in on this guy's life. And it was very grounded, you know, with a story that could be truly out there. And I'm just so happy you did this, man. So again, I have to, of course, of course, I got to thank you for coming on the show to talk about all this. We only scratched the surface. So I can't wait for listeners to see the film. So again, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. It was it was a blast. Thank you so much. All right, that is it for this week's episode. Again, you can find Love and Saucers on DVD or on many different streaming services. Head on over to loveandsaucers.com to learn more. And to learn more about Brad's work, visit bradabrahams.net. We have a brand new Somewhere in the Skies t-shirt now available exclusively through Design by Humans. It's an incredible 80s-style design by listener and artist Desdemona. The design is also available as mugs, phone cases, prints, and all different cuts and sizes of hoodies, shirts, tank tops, and everything in between. It's available now at designbyhumans.com backslash shop backslash Desdemona. D-E-S-D-Y-M-O-N-A. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you may listen from. It helps so, so much. We're on Twitter at Somewhere Skies, Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. And for all past episodes, articles, and to contact me, visit the website, somewhereintheskies.com. I'll see you here next Monday for a very special Witness Accounts, Volume 2, where you'll hear listeners talk all about their own personal UFO encounters. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic Podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.